Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we will be discussing Inferno, the second installment in our Dario Argento, Three Mothers. I get really confused because here in just a week or two we're going to be recording Mother of Tears, and it gets very confusing. Anyways, this is the second installment, like I said, in the Three Mothers retrospective series leading up to the November 2018 reimagining of Suspiria. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan from Chicago. Uh, Don't be confused. This is not the one that came out in 2018 with Tom. I guess it was last year. It's not the one with Tom Hanks. That's different trilogy. That's the Da Vinci Code. This is the Three Mothers trilogy. This is Inferno from 1980, not 2017 or whenever Inferno with Tom Hanks came out. Different movie. I have never seen Inferno before. I had never even heard of such a thing until Alan came over one day with the Suspiria and Inferno Blu-rays. And I'm like, what is this? I have no idea. He said, you've got to watch it. That is how all of this came to be. Alan is not... I'm new to this. Alan is not new. Yeah, this would be my second time experiencing Inferno. Um, Well, I'll save part of what I said last podcast for a little bit later because I just kind of get into some spoilers but there is a reason why I haven't spoken very much about Inferno I'll leave it at that for right now well I'm interested to hear about that and interested to hear about kind of how this movie came to be I know it came out about three years after Suspiria right yeah so far we've tended to follow Star Wars' schedule because uh, a New Hope came out in 1977, and then 1980, both uh, this movie and Empire Strikes Back came out. I think it's more of just a coincidence than anything else. But but yeah. Anyways, so let's get into it. Uh, after the unexpected success of Suspiria, the horror genre, which we stated last time was kind of in a slump, after Suspiria came out, whether that has something to do with Suspiria or not is off the table currently, but... The horror genre was uh, in an upswing, and we were seeing releases like Halloween in 1978, Alien in 1979, and in the same year, we had The Shining and Friday the 13th, both movies that have been at least engraved in pop culture for quite a long time. Uh, Dario Argento Argento and writer Daria Nicoldi uh, announced that Suspiria was the start of a new trilogy, the Three Mothers trilogy, which we had, which we stated last time, which... I guess, which I just stated was a, was a success. So because of that, they decided to announce that this is part of a trilogy. And as Suspirio focused on what they would call the Mother of Sighs or Mater Suspiriorum, uh, its sequel, which is Infernal, uh, this one, would focus on the Lady of Darkness or Mater uh, Tenebrarum. Uh, the third movie, Mother of Tears, would focus on Mater uh, Lacrimarium or Mother of Tears, hence the name of the movie. And because of Suspiria's success, 20th Century Fox decided to partially fund the sequel for Inferno with a $3 million budget from them. Although Nicoli came up with the story and concept, she did not get credit and did not exactly seek credit because there was quite a bit of a struggle to get her name and get credit for the last movie that she had written, which, which, that she had written, which was Suspiria. Those ultimately went to Dario Argento. He took the story and concept and ended up writing that in a... New York hotel that overlooked Central Park, which 
this does come up in the story here in a little bit later. Unfortunately, Argento uh, got struck with some hepatitis, and some things also say uh, meningitis. Uh, either way, he uh, either if he wasn't directing a scene, he was giving it off to the second unit, which ended up also being directed by a man, uh, another famous uh, Italian director, Michael Bra- Michael Bava. This was his very last picture he ever got to direct. And when Dario Argento was on uh, directing duty, he had to be laying on his back to do those scenes because he is in so much pain. Since then, he has kind of stated that this is not his this is his least favorite work because of how much pain he was in during the production of this. Goodness, I had no idea Dario Argento was in such bad health for this movie. But nevertheless, just because he was sick, that didn't diminish any of his creative influence over this, I would assume. Right, yeah. I mean, the only thing that really hindered it was the directing part of it, and that had to be handed off to still a very competent Italian director, but he just wasn't at the helm. That was the whole thing. He just couldn't, he couldn't, wasn't able to control his uh, necessarily ideas as much as he would like to. Hmm. Uh, okay, that that might make a little bit of sense because I can feel a bit of a difference uh, possibly between some of the directorial styles or just even maybe a bit of the look or shot composition between Suspiria and Inferno. I know it's been three years, but nevertheless, watching them this close together, you can feel a difference and even see a bit of a difference. Right. And I think definitely with the visual style, uh, we opted for Technicolor this time. Uh, which the last time we did, Dario Ginger wanted to stray away from Technicolor because of the limitations that came with it when it came to presenting color. This time, for one reason or another, we went for Technicolor, and you, once you, like you just said, you can kind of tell the difference. Uh, whereas Suspiria was very colorful, and those colors were very oversaturated, this movie is kind of downplayed. It's not, it's not as vibrant as before, which is... Could be, uh, well, I guess we'll get into that, but it it is definitely a step away from what Suspiria had done before. Well, before Alan gives you the plot summary, we did want to let you know that we will be talking about spoilers in the plot summary and in this review. So if you have not seen Inferno and you would like to see it before it's all spoiled for you, then go ahead and hit pause right now. I believe it's streaming on Amazon Prime. Yes, that is correct. Video. So if you're a subscriber to that, that's probably your easiest and quickest way to see the film. Otherwise, there's many other options, but go ahead and hit pause, go watch the movie, and then come hit play, and we'll be ready to talk about it. So, Alan, why don't you give him the plot? All right. Now, this is going to be a bit of a long plot summary. I tried to condense it, but this plot is pretty, pretty complex. So there'll be some things where I do kind of summarize or skip over a couple of things. We'll get into those a little bit later. Anyways, Inferno opens with Rose, one of our three main characters, writing a letter to her brother, Mark, who is our second main character, uh, who Mark is in Rome. She is paranoid, however, about the smell of the place that she's in after reading the book called the title of the three mothers uh, that is shown in the very opening of the film. She, which this, of course, then causes her to go and investigate uh, underneath the cellar that is by her apartment complex, under which she there lies a ballroom that is completely submerged in water. And after losing her keys in this like hole, she finds there are dead bodies and then also a framed picture with the title underneath it of 
uh, Mater Tenembrarum, uh, which is one of the three mothers that I just mentioned. Anyways, in this opening, we hear about the three mothers, the mother of size, uh, the mother of size, the mother of darkness, and the mother of tears, which is, which, mother of tears, which is aptly named the mother of the third movie. And we also find out that the book is also written by a man by the name of Varielli, uh, who ends up coming back a bit later in the story. So we cut to Rome after this opening scene with Mark in music class, who becomes distracted by a strange lady who is attending the lecture, dressed in black with a cat in her arms. After the class is over, she ends up leaving, and he chases after her, accidentally leaving a letter that Rose, that his sister Rose had written to him in his, in his seat, which his, uh, I guess, friend or partner uh, named Sarah picks it up and goes to deliver it to him. But she gets a bit distracted by by reading the letter and going to the library to investigate what exactly this Three Mothers is, and finds a finds the same book that uh, Rose had, the Rose had in the in the opening in this library. She also becomes pretty paranoid because of this, and she goes to leave the library as they were closing, and comes across this really weird room with a really strange man in it who sees that she has the Three Mothers book in her hand, and he goes to try and boil her face off, but she ends up escaping. She drops the book and runs out, only to be killed a little bit later on by a person dressed in black. You'll maybe find out who that is a bit later. Anyways, after uh, her death... Uh, actually, before her death, she ends up phoning Mark to come over because she had found something. Well, she died when she went back to her apartment. And so Mark is there. And the only thing that's there in Sarah's room is two pieces of, I guess, two fragments of his letter, uh, which is asking him to come to Rome. So after phoning Rose and telling her that he's coming to Rome, he goes to Rome. Well, Rose ends up dying before Mark ends up getting there. And as he steps into Rose's room, uh, her friend Elise comes up and says, oh yeah, she's kind of actually gone missing. Uh, anyways, so Mark finds blood and follows the trail of blood down to the basement and it's being knocked out himself and then dragged away by the man in black. But then when he's dragged away, Elise sees the the confrontation and the man in black, or the person in black, I guess, sees that Elise is seeing that person dragged Mark away, and so she goes down to investigate, and then is attacked by cats, but then is also stabbed by the person in black, so she's dead. Um, and then later on, when Mark... Okay, so Mark ends up waking up in Rose's room after being taken care of by the concierge, and I guess one of the maids there. I, I think it might have actually been the uh, the mistress that helps out uh, the man in the wheelchair, which, we, which Mark does come across earlier in the movie. So he wakes up there and goes to investigate, talks to uh, the man who works in the antique shop next door. He says he has no idea where she's at, only to the fact that she bought the book from him. And then later that night, I guess later that day, he has a confrontation with the concierge with their cats. So he takes three cats later on to Central Park, tries to drown them, falls over himself, is, a, is a, I guess, semi-eaten by rats, and then has a hot dog stand vendor come by and kill him. So I guess this, I guess we can equate this to the man in black. <sighs> so, continuing on from that, um, Mark gets, uh, I guess, curious once more. And uh, especially after... Well, no, actually, the concierge and Elise's butler... They crack a plan after her learning that Elise is dead to take her jewels, tell her husband that she's run away and make some money off the deal. Well, the person in black invades this and kills both of them. 
uh, one of the concierge lady, she drops the, I guess she catches the drapes on fire. The drapes fall on top of her. She falls out the window and therefore starts a fire in her own hotel. Well, Mark finds his way downstairs. So I guess Mark actually figures out the, the clue that under the sole of the shoes is another, is another thing, another key. And so he finds, so he rips up some boards and goes underneath and finds, I guess, the mother of darkness. I think this is what this one is. Uh, he finds basically her living quarters. In the living quarters is Barry Yelly, the guy from the the guy in the elevator. Turns out he's there, and he's the one who built all of the all the houses for them. He tries to kill Mark, but Mark escapes, runs into the room where the mother is sleep. I guess is just chilling, and then she, according to Wikipedia, turns into uh, death personified. The place begins to catch up in flames. Mark escapes, and that's basically it. Uh, I tried to condense it. It's probably still a bit confusing. Um, this is quite quite an odd story. Yeah, quite odd is almost an understatement with certain <laughs> elements. Yeah. Right. As you can tell, the plot kind of follows some of the same story beats of the first movie where there's just a bunch of deaths along the way of people who have been meddling in certain situations or wronged right. certain characters until we finally get to the final showdown except the first one is quite streamlined i believe the plot summary i gave for the first one was it was just very streamlined and very quick right because this i mean the movie is just feels like it goes by so fast whereas this movie is the exact opposite although it's not incredibly complex as with characters and um, the intricacies of all of that. Nevertheless, there is like, it seems like a million little things always going on and coinciding and then detouring for long stretches of time into right. certain characters that we didn't even care about or we don't even know why this is happening to them. <laughs> But nevertheless, the movie opens in New York in April, and we have a really nice voiceover of this uh, This lady is reading these books, like Alan said, and it's written by this uh, Varelli guy who wrote about the three mothers. And I couldn't help but think of how Sam Raimi would uh, do this about seven, eight years later in The Evil Dead 2 with the opening where the narrator is talking about the Necronomicon. And it sounds very familiar that way, but I think also there is an opening narration in Suspiria, of course. Right. But nevertheless, this is a good way to draw us in and to give us some clarification that I felt like we were lacking in the previous movie, where it's like, what in the world? What does Suspiria have to do with the previous movie? And now we kind of understand these three mothers and their, you know, Mother Suspiriorum and their names. Right, yeah, and this opening, I was kind of taken aback because, well, I guess I'll explain why I haven't really spoken much about Inferno. I don't remember anything about Inferno before watching it for the second time. Upon watching it, I was like, okay, I'm starting to remember things, but I couldn't remember very much oh, about wow. Inferno when we talked, when we had mentioned it uh, last podcast because... I, there isn't really much that sticks with this movie very much. With Suspiria, it's very, very style-driven. The story is there, but it's not the highlight of the movie. The highlight is the story, is the, uh, the, 
the way that it looks and style, and then it's also his music. This one is kind of the opposite, uh, kind of. It still does have a style to it, but not as vibrant and not as forward as Suspiria's is. And it's very, it's more story driven than it was ever bef- than it was before in its previous sequel. But this opening, although it is very uh, informative, it's also a really kind, it's rather wordy because we get a lot of information in a very short amount of time. Um, but it's more or less just set up. This whole movie is kind of setting up a lot of things as well because we're setting up, we're kind of explaining, okay, this is what happened before we're in Suspiria. It was one of the three mothers that was there, Mater Suspiriorum. This one also sets up, we get to see both uh, Mater Terum Brahmum and Mater Lady of Darkness, whatever her name is. We get to see both of them in, in this movie, but only one of them is the main focus, which we come to find out is the Lady of Darkness. And so Mother of Tears uh, is for the next movie, um, Mother, of, which is also called Mother of Tears. Right. And in this opening monologue, like you said, it is quite wordy. But one of the things they do mention is these three mothers. There's three muses, three fates, three furies. Clearly, that's what they're drawing from. They want to rule the world with sorrows, tears, and darkness. And the only that's I feel like that's a bit of a retcon, though, because the Mother Suspiria in the previous movie was they really only cared about their own little nook in Germany and getting people's money. It had nothing to do with ruling the world. And I this one doesn't seem that way either. It just seems like they're just intent upon being evil. And I don't know what else. I mean, just having their own little evil hotel here to trick the two, three guests that live there. Right. I, I do think that it is kind of an investigation to see, okay, who is actually the witch, I guess, uh, yes. of this movie? Who's the main bad of this movie? Because we do have a lot of red herrings. The yes. concierge, which you would think would be the witch because of the monetary value kind of a thing. And then also her just looking kind of evil and being mean to Kazan, uh, the, the antique shop guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, her being mean to him, you would think that maybe she's the witch. Uh, ends up not being that, not being so. She ends up falling out the window after drapes fall onto her. It, it, this whole movie is kind of a kind of a okay. Well, who is the antagonist? Kind of a feel where it's more of a, a kind of like a police investigation uh, than it was the previous movie. They are both still kind of investigation ish movies, but uh, this one is once once again very story driven than it was before. Yeah, and I, I even said I really like this opening a lot. It's very mysterious, and the movie is quite mysterious itself. I don't know if it's as mysterious as the previous one. I guess it's just up to you, really, how invested you are in right. what's going on. Uh, but nevertheless, the thing that did confuse me throughout the whole movie is they talk about there's three keys, and they say it so fast you'll miss it. But we know the second key is hidden in the cellar, and that's where she goes. And then the third – I don't even know what the first key is. It, they seem to skip right over it. And yes. then the third key doesn't come into play until the very end, and it's conveniently right in his apartment, I guess. Um, I will say that I do like this uh, bookstore guy, K- Kazanian or whatever his name was. Right. I like the look of him. He makes me think of like a Bela Lugosi Dracula. 
Uh, he's got a weird, creepy bookstore. There's a really nice exterior shot of one shot of it later on in the movie. I feel like we focus on him more than is necessary. And uh, but nevertheless, this opening is good. But once we get to a certain point, especially once she starts to dive underwater, I yeah. feel like it's too clunky of an opening to figure things out. Right. And then not long after that happens, we cut to, New- I guess, no, I guess it would be Rome. Rome. Yep. And it's like, we we completely shift characters, which yeah. is why in, in the plot summary I said, one of the main characters right. and the, one of the other main characters. Uh, yeah, uh, this opening, I would agree, it's pretty much fine up until the part when she <laughs> drops her keys down this little puddle, which ends up being an entire ballroom kind of place under the cellar um anyways yeah it's all weird it's there are three keys and the reasons i guess the ways that they come about uh discovering where these keys are hidden um is kind of weird because the first key is that oh this place just smells gross and then when she when uh i guess her name is rose when she brings this up to kazani and he's like oh it's always smelled like that you'll get used to it and then the second one is hidden in the cellar is the next key um, and the picture of the sister in the house. And then she decides to just go underneath whatever apartment complex she's in and while all that's there. But then we wait forever until we get to the last key. Like, literally, it only comes up in the third act. And yeah. these first two keys are figured out within 10 minutes. Yeah, that was too much of a disconnect for me. I had forgotten all about them at the in the very end. And then when he remembers it, I'm like... What? How does this even connect with the rest of it? It right. they they should have worked on that connective tissue there. Uh, I think here in the beginning the score is well done. At least it stood out to me, and the lighting is well done. But I do feel like there's almost a bit of a TV ish quality to the film. It doesn't seem up to the previous uh, film standards or even a theatrical standard. Right, and I, I definitely part of that is because Goblin didn't come back for this one, and probably even the use of Technicolor. The two biggest aspects of the last movie are kind of downplayed in this one, and the story, which was very downplayed in the last one, is given the helm in this one. Uh, the change in structure, I guess, is what's making this movie stand out from its previous uh, from its previous movie. But that you're right, this isn't as engaging. Uh, from a story perspective, from, I guess, a movie perspective as the last one was, because the last one, it just jumped right into it. And within the opening credits, you had the opening theme and it brought you in with this really mysterious, but dreamlike uh, score. This one is more orchestral, but at times it's fine. And then other times it's kind of not great. And then because I guess maybe because we're using Technicolor, the colors are very desaturated. Whereas in the last one, they were very overly, overly saturated. Yeah. This feels more, I guess boring is a better way of putting it than the last one, which was, even though, once again, the story was not really there, the style and the music was what carried it. This one is trying to carry it with the story, but the style and the music aren't there. Right. And I, some of these sets are really great, I think, and really kind of unique and just interesting how dilapidated they are. Right. But... They're very unrealistic. Like some of this stuff is like, okay, this is about to collapse in on these people or this would all be condemned by the city and torn down or something. But they're just constantly in these uh, 
completely falling in buildings and I, I don't know part of that just felt like I had to suspend my belief too much and right. oh yeah so I said the score was good here in the beginning that's probably the only time it's good I think because some of it I mean it's nowhere near the score that Goblin and Argento worked on in the last one right this one is just uh Ah, it's just I don't even know how to describe it. Uh, maybe because it's 1980, but I, I personally thought that most of the time it was terrible and really messed up the whole atmosphere of the movie. Yeah, especially in the climax when uh, I, I guess maybe the I, I don't even know. It's just some song plays uh, there at the climax. I mean, we'll get to that point. But but yeah, this music is is not not very good. The opening is definitely the best. Uh, once again, but I, if there's one thing I cannot fault Dario Argento for is his set making, although it does work better in the last movie because the movie is very dreamlike and this one is kind of not. It's more set in reality. Uh, he does a very, very good job at, at his sets. He's of all the movies that I've seen, the sets are always something that he takes very good, great care about. Uh, and that even here, with the movie that he, as clearly stated, is not his favorite movie. In fact, his least favorite. This set still look really, really good. And that I would never... I don't think I... Unless something really catastrophic happens, I don't think I ever fault him for that. But going back to the music, yeah. Uh, it's not great. I don't think it's really because of the year. I think it's just because... I, I think it's just because the lack of maybe even focus of how this movie was supposed to come out. Um, because the music... It's not great. There are moments when it's fine, but the majority of the movie has some either subpar or really just poor music uh, that doesn't really reflect the the atmosphere that Dario Argento is clearly going for. Well, and speaking of not great, those fake dead corpses in the water just took yeah. me out of it. Yeah, they... I mean, if you weren't... If, if you weren't already, like I was kind of taken out of it that she lost her keys and decides to go dive into the water instead of calling for some help. Uh, yeah, it's it's just kind of, it feels like we're really, really pushing for her to find uh, this next clue, I guess. Or um, I suppose it was the fact that there is one of the mothers living or had lived or is there in this apartment complex. So you know how in like movies today, at the end of Marvel movies, they'll put after the credit scenes, they'll tease something, or movies they'll kind of hint at uh, what's to come. I feel like this movie does that because we go to Rome, which is where we know the third mother lives, and we spend, I don't know, like almost half an hour it feels like there. And it's, yeah. it's yeah. a complete derailment from, because we start off with this main girl, and then we see your brother is there. Okay, that's fine. But then he's not the focus. It's this other girl. and Oh, her name's Sarah, just like yeah. we had a Sarah last time. So that's a little confusing. But then we focus on her for quite a while. And then it switches back to the brother who then is the next day from Rome to New York. And I'm like, that you can't fly that fast. Um, but nevertheless, I do think i i mean i like these rome scenes especially the library sequence is uh probably one of my favorite in the movie it's just too much of a distraction plus we get this creepy cat lady that i don't see how she has any effect on the movie whatsoever 
Right. Well, now I'm not going to fault you for not knowing this. I just guessed it and then found out later. That is one of the mothers, uh, the lady with the cat uh, who sits in class, apparently is also one of the mothers, not the one that... uh, not the one that we come to know later. That's a different mother. This is the mother for Rome. Oh. Uh, he sees her and goes and notices her. Uh, oh. And then he goes to New York where he goes and, I guess, discovers or takes or takes down the second mother. But, yeah, where it's this, this Rome sequence is more of a setup for everything else. We find out this is what is going to happen if someone digs too deep because Sarah dies. And then Mark who ends up being our main character in the end, but only in the last act of the movie, he actually does something that makes him main character worthy. Um, This whole Rome sequence, I guess, is just more of just set up. There's a lot of things that really don't make much sense. Once again, she, I guess every character at some point in the movie find themselves in some random catacombs underneath some building somehow. I don't, nothing was really ever explained how they get there because Rose goes down underneath their cellar, which, okay, I can get that. But then she finds a hole filled with water, which is where a house was for one of the mothers. Uh, then Sarah goes to leave the library, but she's paranoid and walks down, I guess, the wrong hallway and into some yeah. other guy's room who almost kills her because she has a, the uh, the three mothers book. And then, and then, of course, Mark decides to pull up some uh, some flooring and find his way into <laughs> uh, the Mother of Darkness's house. It's All these characters have somehow find a way into the bottom part of a building that's just catacomb-esque for whatever reason. Yeah, it's all very random, it seems like. There might be uh, some scribble on a piece of paper that they briefly show, and then all of a sudden it takes them here, and that's how it all comes about. Um, Like I said, I liked the library scene, uh, mostly because... When she goes into like this alchemy room, and this movie talks a lot about alchemy, even though I feel like nothing comes of it. But (laughs) nevertheless, uh, this creepy Nosferatu guy with a 70s shaggy haircut who we only see in silhouette, uh, that scene is great. And I can definitely see John Carpenter borrowing some elements of that chase sequence. And then especially if you listen to the score... It's very close. I can really see where Carpenter is drawing from now. Because I know right. Carpenter was a fan of Suspiria, right? And and of the score? Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure he's a fan of the movie itself. But definitely the score is one of the things that uh, more or less moved him to create the score, the minimalist score of Halloween. Ah, that makes sense. Right. But I got to say, 30 minutes in and I feel like nothing has happened. Yeah, it's all just set up. Fun fact, actually, real quick. The guy in black with the scraggly hand, that's actually Dario Argento. That's our director. I think he plays the man in black throughout the whole movie. I think so. Uh, But yes, that is him, by the way. Okay. I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah. I will also say, once again, nobody really knows how to deliver their lines. Yeah. And the dialogue can be kind of cheesy. Also. Yeah. The audio is a little better, so kudos to them for kind of figuring that out, but I still needed subtitles. Right, yeah, that and whereas Suspiria, you could clearly tell when there was dubbing happening, not just because sometimes the words didn't match the mouth, but the audio mixing itself didn't mix, didn't really match what else was happening. They fixed the mixing part here, but there are still a couple of lines that you can tell they said it 
at least in the last one, they said there were some lines they delivered in their own native language, which may have happened here as well, because there are lines that happen that come from a couple of characters where the mouths don't match the lines that are being said. This is still an issue, but it does at least sound better. And once we get to Sarah's apartment and she's with this random guy who gets stabbed in the neck and then she yeah, gets stabbed in the neck. Yeah, some random guy. She's like, I'm afraid. Will you come yeah. with me? Yeah, and he's like, I've got nothing to do for the next few hours. Right. <laughs> okay. Anyways, I got to say, I feel like we're in a Scream movie with the knife and the black gloves and black coat and people screaming, getting stabbed. I'm like, okay, Wes Craven, somebody's a fan of Argento and Inferno because this feels very much like Scream. Yeah, yeah, it it does really feel like a scream movie because it it it, i guess it is just so cheesy as well as aesthetically somewhat similar to the scream movies uh that one would think that i mean maybe that's true maybe there was some inspiration drawn from argento himself especially from this scene with the mysterious killer uh because really we really only see the hand and some of the arm which is still dressed in black from this mysterious killer uh throughout i guess the entire movie i would believe that this is the same person who kills maybe the opening Pat and Suspiria, the first kill, uh, because the arm does look very similar, very scraggly, kind of burnt, I guess. Uh, But yeah, this is kind of Scream-esque, almost to a point where it's even making fun of itself, but involuntarily because these lines are really cheesy. So I saw it as this, these people that are killed in Rome, they're killed by the witch mother of rome not the one of new york and it couldn't be the one of germany because she's dead so that's why i'm thinking this it gets really confusing because we begin with new york that's what the mother of new york is going to be about then we jump to what i believe to be the mother in rome for about half an hour and then that's all done and then we jump back to new york So to me, this feels like Argento is giving us a big appetizer, almost a main entree in a way, for the third movie that, as we know today, we won't get for like 27 years. Right, right. Yeah, this whole, this opening 30 minutes is, like I've mentioned, it's pretty, basically all set up. Uh, I wonder if it's just kind of playing catch up from Suspiria, which I don't even know if it was meant to be the start of a trilogy, but they said that it was when it got a lot of money and then they announced the sequel. Um, We won't exactly ever know that or whatever. It doesn't really matter. The the point is it feels like they're kind of playing catch up because they're packing all the information that wasn't said in the first one into the second one. So they can set up for the third one as well as create a story in the second one. I think that's maybe what's happening here. That's what it really feels like. Uh, But I don't know if that was the intention or if that was what they were trying to do uh, with the script because the script it's kind of all over the place. It does have a. It does end up finding some of its footing in the last hour-ish of the movie, but this first about maybe forty-five minutes or so is kind of all over the place. Yeah, and I'll make the argument that the Rome sequence is completely unnecessary with this girl finding the Mother of Tears book only to die, whereas the girl back in New York. The sister already had that. This is just an unnecessary third character that is doing a lot of stuff that we'll already get coming up here in the movie. And like I said, it feels more like an appetizer for 
the third movie because we know the third one has to take place in Rome because the first right. one was in Germany. This one is in New York. But nevertheless, it's over with and nothing is learned from it except uh, the brother goes to New York and on the same night in April, like we really needed to know that, uh, she dies. And I think this scene is very effective uh, with how the guillotine scene is shot with the hand pulling it down and pulling it up and her getting shoved in there. Uh, it's kind of reminiscent of the opening uh, death in Suspiria, but I think this one, um, just with how she's like grabbed anyway, because the arm makeup looks a lot better, I think that's mm-hmm. very gross and effective. Yeah, this uh, I, this is also something that Argento is really good at, making pretty creative kills. Uh, this is probably one of the better ones, uh, it, maybe probably even the best of this entire movie, because it is, it feels very Suspiria. Uh, because it is just so over the top, but at the same time, still very creative, where this half of the glass on this door is gone, but the glass is broken uh, in an angle, which makes it like a makeshift guillotine, which is very creative because of what he pulls off with it. And I think that he does a very, very good job uh, at crafting this. However, I think that this scene, although this one is definitely the best one of the, of I guess, all the kills, kind of goes on a bit too long. It builds the suspense, but once again... We don't have the magic touch from Suspiria. We don't have the same music to build that tension the way that Suspiria did in the last one uh, very well, which makes it not as, I guess, satisfying when it ends up happening and she does end up dying. Uh, I would have liked for... If Goblin came back, I think that they probably probably could have saved a lot of this movie because this scene goes on for way too long, along with some other scenes too, before they eventually get to the climax. This could have been shortened up, but I still appreciate the fact that it does do a really good job at being still, at still being creative and in the kills that, or I guess the the kill that happens here. I guess I was just used to it because in Suspiria, there are very elongated sequences, but the part that really stuck out to me was this horrible non-transition where it was a transition right after the death where it just like cuts. Yeah. Oh, it just so stuck bad. out like a sore thumb. Yeah. I mean, Suspiria did, did this a couple of times too, but this once again, if Suspiria has that dreamlike quality to it, so it kind of makes a little bit of sense. Once again, just because it is dreamlike doesn't necessarily negate it from all uh, criticism. This one's different. This one is definitely set more in reality at least that's what it seems like, than the last one. So yeah, when we have this hard cut where the music just cuts off after this pretty graphic scene and pretty creative scene, it's really jarring. Oh, absolutely. And finally, Mark gets to the New York apartment and we are 50 minutes into the movie. Yeah. (laughs) To me, I feel like... It it does. And I feel like we're just starting the movie. Like we're really just getting into... The plot, the Rome stuff could have been saved for the third one. I feel like, honestly, it's just been kind of a string of shorts. They're all self-contained in what they seem to accomplish. And uh, I think the movie should have opened with his sister's death. And then it comes to him in Rome, where she... Right. Yeah, just like... Because it just teases her death in the opening. Right, exactly. Just like in Suspiria, there's this girl who knows the secret and then she dies. Well, in this one... This girl should have found it out, and instead of taking the detour to Rome, she could have figured it out. It could have jumped right to her death, where she calls her brother on the phone, and then boom. We 
that would have been so much cleaner instead of this really clunky getting into the plot. Right, yeah. And it, it is kind of funny, though, too, because this is the second time that Mark has said that a girl, I guess they're both of different relationships uh, to him. But e- either way, two people tell him, come to my apartment, and he goes there, and they're just gone. Right. It's just, I just think that's funny because it happens twice. And they're both for pretty big reasons because both characters do end up dying, and he is not aware of it until much later, uh, and much later after the scene begins. I also feel like the we don't have main characters, really. The focus is following the books. Where are the books located throughout the world? Who has them? Who's connected to them? And then we're going to just follow the books. And since the people with the other books kept dying, Mark, I think his name's Mark. At least that's what I always called him for some reason. He comes to this book, and I'm finding myself not invested in the movie. Um, this is, feels completely different from Suspiria to me. And I feel like there's no real focus or direction except the books, like I said. And we've also had way too many characters and they're all dying. So, you know, quickly that we just got to have a new, basically a new character every half hour or so. (laughs) And, uh, there's just not a whole lot to latch on to. And I'm, I'm not too pleased right now. Yeah, like I said in the summary, there's kind of three-ish main characters. Uh, Rose is one of them, and I even considered Sarah to be one of them. But I think our main, main character is supposed to be Mark. But he doesn't, like I said, start doing things until around this point in the movie, 40 minutes in. We've kind of just been hopping around between Rose and Mark, mainly Sarah in this opening. uh, But then two of them are getting killed off because now it's kind of Mark, but then also somewhat focuses on Elise. Yeah. The main character, I think it was meant to be Mark, which is interesting because the last one was very female-centered, and this one ends up being more male-centered with the females getting the axe there. Just interesting how that's kind of opposite from Suspiria. Regardless of the facts, yeah, the main there really isn't a main character here, and what characters we are given are incredibly shallow and sometimes just non-existent with depth. Uh, Mark is a great example of this, even though he's in it for a long, long time, there is like hardly, there's basically nothing to him, him and almost every other character in this movie. The other thing that I was really looking forward to with this one was the apartment building. I heard some great things about the red on the wall because we know red was used a lot in Suspiria. And I just had these images in my head of this really sinister kind of dark Gothic building. It's kind of that, but not really. It feels very small scale to me. And whereas the ballet dance Academy was huge. Um, Mm -hmm. But I was hoping for this apartment building to be shot kind of like how Kubrick shot the overlook hotel in the shining except with a little bit more colorful flair coming from Argento. And I don't feel like I get that. Yeah, I mean, we definitely do get more color than we probably would normally with any other horror movie. But at the same time, the colors are not as vibrant. This doesn't make it as much of an eye candy uh, art form that the last one did. This one's very underplayed once again which is unfortunate because Suspiria is known for being very colorful and having its style being flaunted essentially this one is although it is there I won't say it's not because it is it's just 
very underplayed. It, they could have done so much more with it, but maybe the fear was that they were going to come off being too similar to Suspiria in the last one, uh, too similar to it. So that's probably what happened is that they downplayed it for that reason. But yeah, at the same time, it's not as very not as pretty to look at. Although, once again, these sets are very, very good, and the color that they use is still better than average. It's still lacking comparing it to Suspiria. Right, and that was one of the reasons that I think Suspiria really worked is because it was so different with this usage of color. And then Argento kind of backs off from that here, and that's why I'm disappointed because... And I'm sure you're right. I'm sure they're like, well, we don't want to look too much like it. We still want this to be its own movie, its own thing. But I think that really worked for it. So I'm kind of sad to see it here. But the next three scenes that we get, I feel, are completely almost pointless or just silly. Uh, Elise, which her full name, by the way, is Elise Stallone Van Adler. Got four names. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. And she dies with a bunch of cats jumping at her. Um, yeah. This is probably one of the more stranger deaths that we have here. A bunch of cats. Attack. I mean, cats have been set up, so it's not anything new, but it just comes out of nowhere. And then the man, I guess the person dressed in black, comes in to finish her off. It's it's honestly kind of silly. It's really cheesy than anything else. Oh, yeah. I mean, sometimes... Um, there's a cat scene in the Omen, maybe? I can't remember. But yeah, there's there's some cat scenes where it's like, ooh, that's vicious. But this is just mm-hmm. hokey how they're like flying left and right like onto her. <laughs> Somebody's throwing these cats. Yes, somebody is throwing <laughs> cats. And there's an endless stream until she is just bombarded by cats. And right. Mark breathes into a air shaft which i think is like a good shot of the air shaft but mm-hmm. uh it like messes him up and then the people are like he needs some heart medicine because his heart hurts yeah so they give him water and then he just i'm like ooh, they're gonna drug him oh here we go and no he just wakes up and wakes up in his apartment right and then right. uh, and then this is probably my least favorite scene of the entire movie is the Kazanian cat drowning scene, hot dog butcher fight. And it's like, I don't know, it's like 10 minutes long or something. It's crazy. Right. This is... It, okay, this scene is honestly hilarious to me. <laughs> <It> because <is. laughs> Let me just try to explain it. Okay. So, Kazanian is an antique shop owner who's an old man on crutches, right? He's tired of the cats, I guess the concierge's cats from the hotel next door. And so, he takes it upon himself to take care of these cats. He puts them in a bag and goes to Central Park to drown them. Upon drowning them, he falls also on, I guess, down, not really into the lake, but he falls and he can't get back up, which... A bunch of rats come by and begin to devour him. Well, across the pond, a hot dog vendor sees this and tries to, or we assume is going to help him, and then turns out he stabs him, finishing him off, leaving him for the rats to devour his body. Yeah. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. I mean, okay, yes, it's creative, but at what point does the creativity go too far? Because this movie, once again, is kind of based in some realism. Had this happened in Suspiria, 
maybe would have been a bit too much, but it would have at least fit better into that movie than it does here because that movie is very dreamlike. This is not so much that way. I, yeah. Oh, okay. Let's, let's just talk about it here for a minute. Um, because from the time it starts from Kazanian going downstairs to find a cat, which he picks up by the nape of its neck, which made me crack up and I rerounded mm-hmm. just, I'm, I pulled my sister into the room. I'm like, you got to see this because he pulls this cat up and it's just like stiff as a board hanging there. <laughs> and then it starts like swatting at his hand till he shoves it in the bag with the other cats. And right. I was cracking up, but then we get multiple shots of him slowly going to the lake because he's on crutches. And then he like, will have to stop and like, make sure nobody's watching him walk. And so I put, poor cat, he's going to drown them. Yikes. And then I said, let's make the cat drowning scene the longest scene ever. And then I said, what an idiot, he fell over. And then I said, well, it's a pretty creepy scene with the rats eating him. Not so sure the score completely works. Once again, let's just make this the longest scene ever. And then I did have a bit of a compliment because I said what works about this scene is the practical effects make it more effective than the CGI, quote, swarm we see in so many movies today. The most recent from my memory, and we just reviewed, was Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where the Russian is attacked on the anthill. I found this to be more effective with the rats eating him in this muddy, you know, shallow water. Right. Then CGI. This scene is just silly, although, I mean... I mean, okay, I understand why he's here. I understand why Kazanian's character is here because he has, he's the one who gave Rose the book, right? That's fine. What I don't understand is why his character is apparently so important to the story. I mean, yes, he had the book in his possession. Apparently still has three copies of the book in his possession, uh, which doesn't get, doesn't cause the man in black to do anything about it except for take the books he is killed by the hot dog vendor which i'm assuming is the ends up being i'm assuming is the man in black still this scene it, to me it's just funny because trying to explain this scene to somebody who hasn't heard of this movie would probably would find it hilarious oh, absolutely and unbelievable so the way i took the hot dog guy is he was somehow possessed or mind controlled by the witch and i always saw the this man in black not like the man in black from halloween five and six but more like uh this was the witch um moving around killing people and she could possess people and take them over uh but yeah we we have more killers and bad guys in this one than honestly then make really sense um who's killing who and why is it different people sometimes uh, yeah it gets confusing um and then of course when we finally figure out who's in on it finally it you know took forever but i think this hotel manager lady looks a lot like miss tanner from the previous one yeah, she really does. I was really confused. I'm like, is this a relative or it almost looks like the same person, but I don't think it is. I'm going to look it up. It is. She's Carol the ta- Carol. She is Carol the caretaker in Inferno 1980. Ah, cool. Okay. 
Well, that's why they. So look it must be like one of those staple actors that always sticks with the director. Yeah, I think that kind of works because Miss Tanner was in charge of the dance academy, and right, this person is kind of in charge of the hotel. But okay, and then it all goes crazy from here, where the guy gets his eyeballs sucked out, and the lady gets the curtain dropped on her, and she falls out a window, and there's a giant fire, and. Uh, Mark starts digging a hole in his apartment and a cat jumps in the hole. Cool. Yeah. I do wonder. Okay. It is. Once again, we have a red herring here. I think I mentioned this earlier uh, with Carol and uh, John is his name. The Elise's butler when they were like, oh, yeah, let's take her jewels and tell her husband that she's run away. Yeah. And no more than the next scene they're both dead, which Carol catches the drapes on fire and then gets them, knocks them off the wall. They fall on top of her. She falls out the window into, I guess, this landing <laughs> and then catches that on fire, which catches the rest of the hotel on fire. It seems like a very elaborate way of finishing off a couple of characters, but also introducing a red herring. I don't think it's ne- completely necessary. They go way too far with this. Oh, they really do. And I got to say, Mark figuring out what's going on, I don't feel like it's earned at all. Not like the last one where I just, I don't know. It's just nothing, not enough has happened. And he just hears his sister say something, I believe, about the third key is under his feet. And it just so happens to be his apartment of all apartments that will get him down into this secret room. Uh, I, I'm just not really buying that. Right. It's, I mean, he is still in his, I guess he is still in Rose's apartment complex. He never did go back to Rome. Nope. But yeah, you're still right. He's supposed to be the main character, but he doesn't have enough screen time and enough things to do to elicit him becoming the main character. He's just here as a, I guess, really just a plot device because he is just so shallow. Although I guess he might even be the most developed character in the story because we do spend more time with him in little bits and pieces up until the very end. This is this very end is when he actually only, is really the only character that actually does stuff. But yeah, him figuring this out is comes out really out of nowhere because the previous scene was Carol and John's death, and then he comes in and goes, ah. Under the soles of my shoes, which means it's somehow, for some reason, in this room, right where I'm standing, is right how I get into this place. Yeah, okay, sure. I do like the rock opera about the three mothers. That's not bad. The music isn't bad, but I don't think it necessarily fits with, uh, well, I guess it might, because this movie is already kind of crazy. Um, It's, yeah, it's it's so beyond what the movie is tone is going for it doesn't necessarily fit completely but i will agree the song is good just feels it's just weird that it's in this kind of a context i did find it to be a twist that the old man in the wheelchair we saw earlier with his nurse is varelli who wrote the books about the three mothers and he said the building is his body and the horror is his heart not a bad line so i was like okay that's cool and i like how he uh stabs 
Mark, who sucks out the injection like a like he's sn- sucking out snake venom, spitting it out, and then the old man is choking. It's all a bit comical. Uh, yeah. It, eh. But uh, yeah, it is kind of odd twist. though because he's just, the old man is just like, "Come here, I have to tell you something. Yes. I have to whisper it to you," yes. which automatically you would think would be a red flag, but Mark just goes, "Okay." Mark, uh, Mark's not the best judgment in this movie. Nah, not really. He uh, really. doesn't make very good choices, and I, he just doesn't know what he's doing at all. Um, I did like the silhouette in the background when they're like, uh, Varelli's like, oh, she's over there, and you see the silhouette, and then Mark goes into this really awesome room with some really creepy cave walls with like hands and faces in them in a creepy room uh, with this lady laying on the table and the nurse being the mother is a good twist. I thought. Yep. Yep. I do think that, I mean, I think that this twist has worked pretty well for the movie because we do set up them pretty early on when Mark gets to Rome and then they hop, he hops in the elevator and they're there and they, they have a small conversation and they're kind of here every once in a while uh, and up until the very end. Uh, because everything else is kind of a red herring, but this one it comes out to actually be true, and it's like the person you would least expect. So at least this twist works pretty well. Uh, but I think the thing that kind of pulls me out of this movie a little bit more is when, one, like I mentioned in the in the summary, the mother becomes death personified, and the costume doesn't really look all that good on her or whoever's in the costume. It looks pretty dated. Oh, Yeah. Um, I thought it was uh, actually a very good effect, and the scene mm-hmm. was working. Not not the costume, but I'll building up to that. But when she yeah. disappears and she's in the mirror, and there's this kind of wide shot of right. this whole chamber, and she said it's all going to burn down just like before. And we know Mother Suspiria uh, first supposedly died in the fire, and then she guess I guess she redied again in the fire. I don't know. And then her in the mirror, this is all very well done. And I'm like, where has this type of cinematography been? This whole movie. Right. It's quite different than anything we've seen. But yeah, then when she runs at the mirror, I'm totally into it until uh, the Party City skeleton costume jumps out. And I'm like, no, what (laughs) What are they doing? It's so hokey. It's obviously a rubber skeleton and I'm like, maybe in 1980 it was cool, but I, I, it doesn't date well. Yeah, I, and I will agree with you. They affect when she like fades away and she still exists. The mirror, I mean, it's kind of cool because mirrors once she gets into this place become a very big thing. They're really they're introduced and showing quite a lot in the background, uh, which is kind of cool. But once again. That also kind of all wears off once she becomes, as Wikipedia says, death personified. It it doesn't look good at all. Uh, this is the last time we see her. This is the very end of the movie. And just like in the last one, it kind of just ends abruptly. Uh, once the character exits the building, This that's it. The movie's over. Um, it is, it's an interesting ending. Very similar to Suspiria uh, with, with what happened before. But I don't, yeah, doesn't have the same amount of impact. I wish that the rest of the movie was like that scene when he talks and they have a conversation and the, when she disappears from the real world but still exists in the mirror. Yeah, where was that for the rest of this movie? And so, okay, the big problem is the fire happens 
seemingly by coincidence, Mark has no effect on it, where in the other one, the main girl stabs the mother and is the undoing of the witches. The hero defeats the villain. He doesn't really do anything except flee the burning building. Uh, yeah. That's he, pretty lame. He finds out that they exist, and then he yeah. leaves. It's it's quite lame, and it's all just, I guess the takeaway is evil was its own undoing. Okay. And, I mean, the exterior shot of the burning building is very cool. Uh, but the skeleton screaming with fire and throwing its hands in the air, and then the credits roll, it's like, what? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this whole thing essentially was caused because Carol was dumb. Yep. And fell out the window after catching the drapes on fire. It's anticlimactic. <laughs> yeah, it, it really, it really is. There, it doesn't. Mark doesn't do anything that a main character really should have done. He does a couple of things that elicit the title of main character, maybe, but because this movie is so unfocused, the main character is just lost in the sea of story. I guess is what yeah. would be considered. The thing that disappoints me that seems to me to be so obvious that they're completely missing to complete the narrative structure is if you're going to set up this big bad, how do you defeat the big bad? The big bad seems to always be defeated by, so far anyway, almost by chance there's some thing, something that happens where it enables the person to defeat them. Um, I, I really wish because we know Suspiria was kind of uh, drawing from fairy tales and in the fairy tales there's always some magical object or sacred object they have to use to you know defeat the evil or overcome the spell or something there should have been some right. type of artifact where it's like the only way to defeat the three mothers is you have to use this for this one and this for that one and etc and there's none of that because that could have at least given Mark a quest to find something to use against her, but no, he just perchance digs a hole in the floor and finds a skeleton from Party City and runs out of the building. Right. That, right. And maybe we're missing a scene. Maybe there was <laughs> something in the original edit that had a reason for him to dig this hole in this one room right where he was standing. That's not in the movie, so I we can't judge it on that merit. <laughs> So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Sus Oh, no, not Suspiria. <laughs> Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Inferno? Well, uh, I do own this Blu-ray. And I own it. I, it's kind of funny, actually, because when I watched this movie for the first time, I gave it an 8 out of 10. That rating's changed a bit. Um, this movie is missing the parts that made Suspiria so iconic, and maybe that was the point. Maybe, and maybe Dario Argento was trying to make something different than what Suspiria already was, and I can totally see that. Problem is, he doesn't really pull it off like I think maybe he was going for, and maybe that's due to the fact that he was he couldn't be there for most of the filming because he was sick. I we don't know. That being said, e easily Suspiria is the better of the two that we've seen. And the way that he uses color and the way that he uses, I guess just mainly color for right now, although it is there and not as commonplace in other horror movies that you would normally see, 
it's not as effective as before. And has Suspira not been here, maybe it would have been more effective than what it is now. But because Suspiria does exist and it is marketed as the sequel to Suspiria, I can't help but judge it on those merits. The music is also a big disappointment because in the last one we had Goblin and Goblin along with working very closely with Argento crafted a very mysterious and creepy main theme that both Corbin and I have expressed is a very good composition. I can't say the same here. In fact, most if not all of the music is not good. There are a couple of, a couple of tracks that are fine. The ending theme is fine. It's, it's a good it's a good ending theme, but not good for the context that it's put in. Other than that, if it's the music is not standout, then it's not great. Both of those things is what made Suspiria so iconic because it was so great to look at and so awesome to listen to, despite some of the mixing, that it was a joy to at least live out what was not a story and just watch it for its style alone. This one is opposite. This one goes for a story, a very heavier emphasis on story but it doesn't pull it off very well it's kind of it's kind of all over the place and when it finds its footing there's nothing there to make it iconic there's nothing there to make it stick like it i guess is trying to do i mean if you want to watch it sure you can go ahead but ultimately it's pretty boring especially on a second viewing there's a reason why I don't remember much from this movie, and it's because there isn't really much to remember. I mean, there are things that are much different than what you would normally see, obviously. I mean, we've, that's just Argento in a nutshell. It's Italian horror. That being said, it's nothing great. Five out of ten, I'm going to give it a not recommend. Argento brings back his love of shadowy color and dilapidated environments to craft a wickedly grim atmosphere in the architectural vein of New York Gothic. He plays with sickly environments to instill in us a sense of otherworldly, nightmarish abodes that seem so repulsive we can't help but admire the craftsmanship that transplants us into this dreadful realm. Unfortunately, building little nightmares seems to be all Argento cares about. The sequences found in this film barely coalesce into a united narrative, with some plot threads being dropped altogether, such as the mysterious lady Mark continually encounters and Mark's girlfriend's encounter with the supposed third mother in Rome, being a plot set up shoehorned into this film to pad the running time and possibly get us excited for part 3. Honestly, that sequence was my favorite of the movie, and that was the movie I wish I had gotten. I did appreciate Argento's visual callbacks to old vampiric cinema such as Nosferatu and Bela Lugosi's Dracula, along with his stylistic and narrative callbacks to Roger Corman's film House of Usher and also The Mask of the Red Death, playing with color that way. The film began strong with a well-told history of the three mothers, but the film devolved from there into pointless, elongated death scenes that really had no bearing on the consequences of anything or anyone trying to be built. Argento doesn't build a world here like he did with Suspiria, and his goofy score doesn't help. In fact, it completely took me out of the movie. I found myself wondering what the purpose was to anything. It made me anxious and wishing I could cut it off. I do reserve the right to shut it off, but I want to say that I gave the entirety of Three Mothers a shot, and I was hoping for an ending on par with its predecessor, and I somewhat got that. Inferno is a needless watch and a boring waste of time. Inferno receives 3 stars out of 10 with a strong not recommend. Now that we've seen the first two, I am very curious to see what Mother of Tears has. 
once again, we had to wait till 2007 to get that sequel. Uh, when this was released in 1980. I'm curious. I really am. I haven't seen it. Neither of us have. So I'm curious to see what a more modern Argento-esque film is going to be like. Yeah, and I'm intrigued as well. From the still images, it doesn't look anything like these two movies. I don't know. The uh, lead heroine is Asia Argento, Dario's daughter. So that should be interesting to see. She's been in the news lately. She is in trouble, supposedly, for some inappropriate stuff. Uh, I've also seen her in Triple X, but yeah, I'm kind of curious to see. I've never heard of anybody completing a trilogy this far apart with, it took 30 years from the time from 1977. He ended it in 2007. That's pretty unheard of um, to, to make a trilogy and be like, oh yeah, this is part two. Stay tuned for part three. Nearly three decades later, um, it's going to be quite different. Right. Um, I've heard some not very good things, but I don't know. I'm hoping it's at least better narratively than this one. Yeah, I would hope so. Uh, this It's weird because the only one that you really ever hear people talk about is Suspiria. Somehow, some guy uh, apparently put Inferno on one of the top rated horror movies of all time i am not entirely I, I think it's top films i think it's the one i think it's who picked it as one of the best uh, i can't really agree with that i will see where mother of tears sits this is the one that you really don't hear right. anything about and it is interesting that the fi- finale to a trilogy comes so long after it's been really after the first one yeah, been released. absolutely so we will be bringing you our review of mother of tears Finishing off that trilogy, but we won't be done with the retrospective series quite yet. Uh, Early November, we'll be coming back to finish it off for now with the reimagining slash sort of pseudo remake of Suspiria, which looks to be similar in some ways, but quite different in others. I'm very intrigued to see that movie because the trailer looks quite brilliant and quite frightening. And we will be capping off our Halloween retrospective here very soon. We will be reviewing Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, which will end all of the movies that have currently been released. And then next month, we will be coming back to talk about the new movie just titled Halloween, which I saw the new trailer for playing before the nun and... Wow, it it looks so similar to John Carpenter's original that I'm very excited. It it looks to be the best sequel, the the best installment that well, no, just the best sequel that we've got. I'm very excited to do uh review that with Alan soon. And honestly, just to wrap up the Halloween series because we've been doing it for like 10 months now and bit of Halloween going fatigue. on a year. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) it's been a bit of Halloween fatigue, but nevertheless, it's been really fun and you don't want to miss those reviews. Go back into the archives because we have a lot of fun talking about those movies. There's plenty to talk about and listen to, and we've got some good comments on those as well. So thank you for uh, commenting back and engaging with us and uh, especially with those movies. I, I was, I didn't think anybody would engage with Halloween five, the revenge of Michael Myers, <laughs> right. but nevertheless, we got some good comments on that. 
So thank you very much for that again. And we also will be uh, firing up the uh, Damien Chazelle retrospective series here soon, which I'm glad we're getting in early-ish because he's definitely somebody Mm -hmm. to watch. I'm very excited. I have seen the two that have made the big theatrical runs. I've seen, I guess we both have seen him, Whiplash and La La Land. Haven't seen Guy and Madeline on a park bench. I'm very curious because that's like that was that was his first yep. one before he got uh, Blumhouse to help him out with Whiplash. I'm curious. I'm curious to see what happens with that and First Man. I'm very excited to see what he can do with a different kind of genre other than being focused solely on music. I am very intrigued as well. I have not seen any footage for First Man. I know it's at like the Toronto Film Festival right now and everybody's uh, talking about it. It seems like so possibly. Right. Chazelle might be coming back to the Oscars. I don't know. We'll see. I have seen the trailer. Uh, I saw it when I saw it was some movie in the theater. It was there. It was when it looks pretty good. Okay. I mean, I think it's just more of a teaser than anything yeah. else. But from what I've seen, it does look good. Apparently, the new trailer that came out makes it look really good. Oh, wow. I'm very excited. Okay. I'm very excited as well. So um, we'll be coming to you. Well, pretty soon here with that retrospective and it won't be too long because first man comes out this november uh very quickly here and we have a bunch of other great uh retrospectives and podcasts planned for you as well but thank you for joining us on this dario argento series it's been a unique one a unique horror horror from a few decades ago, stuff that I've never seen before, so it is nice to experience new horror from a well-regarded director and to uh, get those movies reviewed and talk about uh, before the new Suspiria comes out so you guys will have some point of reference to base your thoughts and reviews for the new Suspiria on. But once again, thank you so much, listeners. We'll be coming back to you very shortly, and we'll catch you next time.